Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. Linda Birnbaum, Dr. Ami Zota, and host Steve Heilig. This conversation is part of the Che Cafe series, co-presented by TNS and Che, the collaborative for health and environment. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I am Kira Epstein, the program coordinator at the New School of Commonweal. And today's conversation is co-presented by two longtime Commonweal programs, the New School and the Collaborative for Health and Environment, or CHE. CHE's Executive Director, Kristen Schaefer, and I are both really honored to welcome Drs. Linda Birnbaum and Ami Zoda here today. They'll be talking about environmental health with our host, Steve Heilig. Steve, it's great to have you back with us. We are recording this conversation. We'll have produced audio and video files available on both the New School and the CHE websites. Uh, You can find all of our recordings on the New School's SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify feeds as well. All right, so I'm going to turn it over to Steve Heilig. He's a senior research associate at Commonweal and a co-founding director at Shea and the host of many wonderful New School conversations as well. So over to you, Steve. Thank you very much, Kira. And good day or even good night to many people here. We have a wonderful turnout. I see people from other continents are on here. So whatever time it is, thank you for joining us uh, from wherever you are. This is the Che Cafe we're calling this because it's a slightly less formal presentation with uh, just some dialogue among people that we invite to be here. And Che has been putting on webinars now for 21 years, actually, uh, since we began it. And the primary aim when we started was to bring together a lot of people from different disciplines who shared a concern for environmental health, but often we're not in touch with each other very much. And so this in primary categories would be scientists, clinicians, people in medical and healthcare, environmental advocates and patient groups and uh, anybody else really who was very interested in this. And it was really a concept that we started not knowing if it would take off and thinking when Michael Lerner and I first talked about this and some others, Dr. Ted Shetler and Pete Myers and others, We figured, you know, we'll go for five years and see how this works and either cancel it or spin it off and let somebody else do it. Well, 20 plus years later, here we are. We did have a celebration of our 20th anniversary at Commonweal a few months ago. It was wonderful. And the uh, recordings of that are available on the CHE website. There was also a copy of our journal with the Medical Society. It's a little fuzzy there. But anyway, that is available, too, on the website. And it includes articles by some of our founding people and others, including Dr. Burbaum in, in that edition as well. So today we're the, we gave it the very general topic of the future of environmental health. And, and uh, that can mean many different things. What we've seen over the years is a real broadening of people's concept of what environmental health means. And it's um, in the context of what we're calling the poly crisis, in a sense, the various many issues that are coming out, climate has become a much bigger issue than it was when we started, just to give one sweeping example, and that has a lot of implications for environmental health. So two speakers or two guests that we invited today graciously agreed to be here 
And uh, you have seen on when you registered who they are. So we're not going to go into a lot of detail about uh, positions and credentials and all of that. Just rest assured that they're great. And we're going to begin actually with Dr. Amizoda a little bit about if you want to tell us about how you got into this field and where it has led you up to this point, what your focus is now. And uh, if you want to say anything about Che, that's fine too, but you don't have to. <laughs> so please go ahead, Ami. Thank you, Steve. And first of all, I just want to really um, thank you and Kristen for the invitation and this opportunity to have to be in deep dialogue with uh, one of my sheroes, uh, Dr. Linda Birnbaum. Um, you know, I've had the pleasure of calling her a friend and a mentor. Um, you know, I think since I was a postdoc in, uh, I think we first interacted in 2008 when we were both doing uh, PVD flame retardant work. Uh, so, uh, you know, that that's a long time ago, just to give you a sense of, uh, you know, how long I, I've been um, doing this work. And, um, just a little bit about how I started. I was born and raised in um, rural North Carolina to um, Indian immigrant parents. Definitely, you know, this idea of getting, uh, a, a, you know, a doctorate, becoming a scientist, you know, these really weren't things that, uh, you know, were, you know, there weren't really people in my, in my kind of community or, you know, social um, community um, when I was growing up to, to know that the, this was like a path. Um, and, you know, I was really guided by um, the fact that kind of when I was an undergrad, I, you know, I really was drawn to this idea that scientific knowledge and scientific tools can be a catalyst for social and environmental change. And, um, and I was compelled to work at the intersection of um, kind of scientific fields and social justice. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm proud to say that, you know, that that kind of that, that North Star still, um, you know, guides my work. And I think that has been kind of a theme of my work uh, for, you know, 20 plus years now. So, uh, you know, I would say that's a little bit about how I sort of ended up here. You know, it was a, a lot of serendipity and, and mentors like Dr. Steve Wing was was really influential and Dr. Fran Lin, both of who have passed away now. Um, so just a little bit about what I do now. Um, I'm an associate professor of environmental health sciences at Columbia Millman School of Public Health. I'm also the founding director of uh, Agents of Change and Environmental Justice, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a population health scientist by training, and my research broadly seeks to understand um, social and structural determinants of environmental exposures. So these are upstream factors, for example, like federal housing policies or environmental racism in the beauty industry and their consequent impacts on women's health across the life course. Um, so that kind of is like my reproductive epidemiology training. Um, but, you know, um, really my long-term goal is to help secure environmental justice and health equity among systemic, systemically marginalized populations. And I think we all know, Linda knows, you know, science alone will not get us there, right? You can have good science, but if you are not leveraging that good science, you're not going to create change. So, you know, I'm these days helping to shape our field in big and small ways. Um, I'm training next generation leaders, trying to put a lot of creativity, innovation, and impact into that. Um, increasing public engagement with science. Um, I, I love science communication, do a lot of work with media. 
and supporting community-led solutions for structural change. Um, so really digging deep on community engagement. Um, so um, it, it keeps me very fulfilled and, and obviously very, very, very busy. So um, I'll, I'll end there. Thank you, Ami. We'll come back to some of those, as you say, of course. And then uh, now let's hear from Dr. Lynn Birnbaum, who um, has a long and prestigious history in this field and uh, has gladly agreed to talk with us today. So Linda, please go ahead. So I was actually trained in microbiology, molecular biology, and biochemistry and migrated into toxicology and then environmental health. And part of it, I think, and this is something I always stress to not only mentees and students and everything else, is you have to kind of follow your passions and find what you find really exciting and fulfilling to work on. Um, when, I, when I finished a bunch of my training, I actually was following my husband for a couple of years. And then it was time for him to follow me when I actually moved to NIEHS as a tenure track scientist in 1979. I spent 10 years there having a wonderful time kind of getting tenure, moving up the track and beginning to kind of expand what my interests were um, beyond toxicology into more developmental and reproductive biology and endocrinology. And then I was recruited to EPA to run the largest health division there, which I did, or I was at EPA for 19 years, running the largest health division for much of that time. But part of the time I had what really turned out to be a marvelous opportunity to learn where I ran what was called the human studies division. And that's when I became introduced to epidemiology and clinical studies. Not that I would do them in any way, shape or form by myself without help, but it introduced me to kind of the field. And from that, from that, I was recruited back to run NIEHS and the National Toxicology Program, which I did for almost 11 years. And it was a wonderful, exciting um, time in which I think we really grew the whole field and the whole concept of environmental health. I did retire. It's almost three and a half years ago now, hard to believe. Um, but I have, am as busy as ever doing a lot of mentoring, a lot of um, advocacy work. Um, and I think part of also what I'm doing, I'm still a scientist emeritus at um, NIH. I did close my lab um, this year because I really didn't have the time to do it anymore. But I am also a scholar in residence at Duke, and I currently am mentoring about five or six students at uh, the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke. So I've had a wonderful time. I, I have to keep saying that. And what I've seen with environmental health is that the field has dramatically expanded. I think when I kind of started in the field, the focus was either on infectious disease as the paradigm for what the environment could do to people or sometimes on chemicals. And it was kind of restricted there. And as we've moved forward, we're understanding that there's, there's this whole multiplicity of things that can impact our health in the environment. And social construct is one very, very important one, which I think has been largely ignored until people like Ami came along and Steve Wing, I would give credit to as well, but and, and other groups. But other things, you know, we forget about the role of our diet. We forget about the role of drugs. We forget about the role of our lifestyle. And 
I'll talk later about the importance of climate and the whole pollutome and when we talk about environmental health. Yes, well, so I wonder if you might expand a little bit on that. Uh, when you came in, you said that it was mainly uh, chemicals and infectious diseases as environmental health. And you know, when Chase started, it wasn't our only focus, but part of it, you know, the, the primary focus for a lot of the work was, in fact, chemicals. So in that 20 years or so, how have you seen that evolve? I mean, you know, this goes all the way back to Rachel Carson, right? Uh, now 60 years ago. And uh, it be, remained a focus of much of our work, and we've seen it expand otherwise. And I'm wondering if you see, you know, there's so much more scientific wisdom. Has it changed the dialogue uh, in a broader sense and the focus of what, what chemicals research is about? Not as much as I'd like to see it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think when, for example, and I may be getting ahead, ahead of where we want to be at this point, but when we look at climate change, which I think most of us would agree is the existential threat of the 20, um, 21st century, I think what is often forgotten about is the role of chemical pollution as not only driving the threat, but as a result of that threat. And I think that it's often ignored when people talk about climate change. Just like, for example, people are now talking about infectious disease and they're beginning to understand the role of climate change has in infectious disease. But people aren't looking or aren't thinking about the fact that we have this integrated system. And depending upon you eat, what you eat, depending on where you live, depending upon what your other exposures are going to dramatically alter your response to infectious agents. You know, having survived the pandemic of the last three years, I would love to see people opening their minds more to the idea that these infectious agents are being impacted by so many things in, in the world in which we live. And it's not just infectious agents. I have to say that, you know, CDC focused almost exclusively on infectious disease and the environment is very much an afterthought. Yeah. Ami, do you want to say something about that? I mean, the, the differential exposure and impacts of, of chemicals and pollution on different populations seems to be part of your focus or mm -hmm. underlying your focus. Uh, sure. I mean, I think where, where I would like the field also to move, and it is moving, you know, sometimes, I mean, I am impatient, so for me, it's not moving fast enough, but is what I call solutions-oriented research. Um, I mean, come on, the reality is we know that systemically marginalized populations are disproportionately exposed to almost any type of environmental hazard, whether it's chemicals, air pollution, you know, heat, uh, you name it, uh, you know, and this is, you know, because of social and historical factors, you know, like racism, it's because of our policies. Um, so what, you know, how can we do research um, in environmental health that will really um, help open the door to, to actionable kind of policies, everything from the local level to the international level, right? So I think we have to move beyond just characterizing harm. And, um, you know, I'm, you know, things that excite me is, you know, for example, NIHS is putting more into implementation science and, and you know, these type of 
um, you know, maybe they're not new, they're newish to environmental health, but to help us um, still kind of um, use rigorous scientific frameworks to collect important evidence, but, um, you know, to really help us um, to, to act and not in 10 years, but, you know, in the next, in the next 10 days. Um, so, uh, you know, when I think about kind of environmental health equities, um, I, I, I want us to um, not just stop at characterizing harm. And I think that's why I have, tr I'm tr you know, I talk about now structural determinants and I think thinking about commercial determinants, political determinants, right? Um, we, we have to study those more because you know, often it's, it can be hard to intervene there, but if you do intervene, the, the potential for it to impact more people is, is, you know, is really there. So, uh, I think that that's something I would just like to, to add to the conversation and hopefully, um, you know, inspire a lot of the scientists out there to, to, to make the leap to, to, you know, use our impressive rigorous tools to, to move further upstream. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that in terms of both, you know, both of you talked about how you first got into this. So a lot of this starts with if we're going to kind of walk this through with education at the beginning. I mean, you talked about having to find your own way, really getting interested in this and, and finding how to pursue it both scientifically and then now a bit more, for lack of a better term, policy advocacy, even politics. So. Do you think that if in the recent decades that this is really moving along in terms of better educational opportunities for young scientists and advocates advocates to get into good university programs and find mentors like Linda, et cetera, and, and move this forward? Is that improving, you know, in, in your experience? Um, you know, and I mean, I guess maybe here is where I'll put a plug for Agents of Change and Environmental Justice. Um, so this is a fellowship program that um, I started in, in 2019 in partnership with Environmental Health News, which is a media nonprofit that I think all of us are, are you know, have, are, you know, know about and have collaborated with. And um you know, I, I started it because I think public engagement of, you know, engaging the public with our science through, you know, by talking to the media, by engaging, you know, translation work, science communication is so key. And it is not, um, re, you know, it's changing a little bit, but it really isn't emphasized in, in, in kind of our PhD doctoral education programs or even our master's programs. And, I, you know, I also saw that I do a lot of work talking to the media, but that mostly the thought leaders from our field, there, there really wasn't much diversity kind of, if you really looked at kind of who were our main spokespeople, you know, for our field engaging with the media. So I started this program to essentially amplify neglected voices in environmental health and justice. And I'm um, so now the program is really kind of, um, you know, evolved to really, um, you know, develop emerging leaders in environmental and climate justice. So we really have expanded to fully embrace climate justice. And, you know, um, the, our, our trainees are early career scientists, but they're not just limited to kind of epi or environmental health. You know, we have engineers and chemists and sociologists and people pursuing, you know, um, PhDs in chemical engineering and education. So we're thinking very expansively about it. And um, we're, I mean, we're doing a couple of things where we're teaching them how to um, 
you know, develop allyship with social movements. We're um, teaching them how to communicate with the public and actually providing platforms to do that in print, audio, video. Um, and we're really trying to um, teach them the skill of storytelling because I think you both know that like data alone does not drive action, right? It's it's stories, it's human stories. And our, our really our idea is if you think about equity issues, you know, these scholars who, you know, like they they live, you know, in in communities that are most impacted. So they have that lived experience. And then they also have this amazing technical experience. And that kind of that combination of the lived and technical experience, you know, is uniquely suited to kind of um, come up with innovative solutions. And so we want to kind of um, we want really want to amplify those those solutions, right? But because we 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 need them. Um, so uh, I think that's one thing that like where I have kind of um, invested in kind of creating these new models to to fill the gaps, you know that I that I've seen in the training. And I think there are other programs that are also um, emerging, and um, you know it's an exciting time right now. Yeah. Well, and I should add here for those who don't know that. Ami was one of our, Jay's small way of trying to encourage us, one of our 20 under 40 pioneers about five years ago on this too. So, um, and Linda, so you, you know, truly a pioneer in this educational aspect of it and moving it forward with more scientific. Would you reflect on what's needed there and how it's been going? Well, I, I really have to second what Ami has just said, a couple of things. First of all, she talks about problem solving or solution solving. And I usually talk about problem solving, and I think it's really, we're looking at the same issue, that you can spend a lot of time discussing what the problem is, but often we don't move to talking about, well, how do you fix it? How, you know, often you can solve a problem by not going a straight line, by going a different way to get to where you want to go. So this is something I often try to talk with, like, producers or chemical companies about, you know, well, maybe you don't need this chemical. Maybe there's another way to make this um, chip or this plastic or something work. I shouldn't say plastic because we all know we have too much plastic. So that's a different issue. But I think that Ami's, some of her focus on communication and training is absolutely essential. Scientists, I think, unfortunately, often have kind of the attitude that what they do is so complicated, they can't possibly explain it. And what I tell people when they say that to me is, then you really don't know what you're talking about. Because you have to be able to understand what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, and the impact of what you're doing, and explain that. I usually would say, you know, a bright sixth grader, but frankly, it could be a bright fourth grader is often appropriate as well. So something I did at NIEHS and I continue to do with students and mentees and stuff is really encourage them to communicate their findings. You know, there's the three minute elevator speech or the and the 30 second elevator speech to know what you're doing so you can tell people. So when you go see your cousins that you haven't seen in a couple of years and they say, what are you doing? You can make them have some comprehension of the importance of what you're doing um, going forward. So I think that those are some really, really, really important points reflecting on what Ami has said. Yes, you both mentioned the uh, aspect or kind of a contradiction of advocacy and scientists 
have historically been trained and inculcated into a culture where you do your work and let others fight out about what it means, right? And to not get actively involved. I had, you know, very interesting when I was a young kid, we had a neighbor in our on our very street named Sherwin Rowland. And he was the Nobel Prize winning scientist right. who co-discovered the uh, ozone link to CFCs. And he had conversations about this. You know, when he started to speak out about it, he was attacked by industry funded and other people. And various colleagues said, you know, just let other people do that work. But he wound up saying, you know, if we know what our work means, we are obligated to try to fix the harms from it to make the world a better place. And he spent his latter years speaking out a lot about it. This is true in medicine too. Physicians and, and researchers who learn about big problems socially are often very difficult to, you know, reluctant to get into advocacy. So I wonder if you might reflect on, you know, how do you argue or convince or at least show a good example to colleagues about how it's important to be involved in policy related issues. Linda, you want to go first? Go. <laughs> well, let's say I have always spoken truth to power, even when it's gotten me in trouble. I think it's very important that you say what the impact of what you're doing is and where you see it leading. I think it's extremely important for scientists to interact. The idea that somebody else should talk about your work. Nobody knows your work better than you do. And I think it's really important to establish those relationships. Ami brought up the point um, before about multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary training and approaches. And I would see the whole issue of communication and advocacy and policy as part of those transdisciplinary directions that people need to take. I mean, how are policy people going to make informed policy if they're not talking with you about it or you don't talk with them about it? They're not going to find it from the paper you publish in science or nature or epidemiology. So I think that. It's very, very important for us as scientists to have an open line. But let's just say to all stakeholders, you know, we can talk about working with advocates, but I think it may be also, or I know it's important for us to also talk to, for example, the producers and people who are making products or people who are using products as well. Because, you know, I think most let's say people don't want to harm people, <laughs> you know, they don't want to hurt people. And I think that when they become better informed, then they can make better choices as well. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Linda Birnbaum, Ami Zota, and host Steve Heilig. So I can add a couple of things. I mean, one, I just want to say Linda really has led by example here. And, um, you know, as a junior person, when Linda, you were, you know, at the helm at NIHS to see you speaking out and to see you testifying, you know, on um, some of these chemicals and, um, you know, I mean, that that was very validating, you know. So, um, 
I just want to say that, you know, I, I, you know, I have always appreciated how you speak truth to power and that um, what, you know, when you do that while being in a leadership role has many, um, you know, it, 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 it leads to ripples. It does have small and big repercussions. So, um, but a couple of things, I mean, so one, there's strength in numbers and um, one very effective consortium that both Linda and I are part of is tender Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, it's like targeting environmental neurotoxicants. Neurodevelopmental. N- neurodevelopmental, yes. Risks. Okay, there you go. We can, we can <laughs> do it together. But, um, and so it's um, Maureen Swanson and Dr. Irva Hertz-Picciotto who kind of co-lead it. But it's, it's they, you know, they kind of shepherd this consortium of about 50 individuals, really renowned scientists, health professionals, doctors, nurses, et cetera. And, and and health advocates, and um, it's it's been so effective because you know there's these working groups, and so there are big and small ways you can contribute your knowledge. Um, there's people who really understand the EPA regulatory process and policy, and so we're doing very targeted efforts that um, have had real serious impact. Um, on, on how EPA is making their decisions, on what FDA decides to do. And so um, and, and so to me, that has been a, a, a pretty, you know, compelling and transformative because they've also kind of somehow lowered the bar for kind of the level of engagement needed by any individual scientist. Um, and, um, and, um, and, you know, there's just, it's kind of like something that, you know, as you as a person can engage with at, at different you know, depending on your availability and depending on your expertise. So I've been very uh, involved in the phthalates working group. And, you know, be, because of that, I may end up on, you know, the the ancillary committee to the science advisory committee at the EPA, you know, that's going to be looking at phthalates. And we, we've been engaging with the FDA on, you know, how they regulate phthalates in food. I mean, we haven't yet had the successes we've wanted, but you know, our, our efforts, right, matter because it, it, you know, these aren't changes that happen over, you know, in a month or in a year. It's, you know, it's, it's um, as Pete Meyer said, the constant drumbeat, right? And um, I mean, and the other thing I would just say um, on a personal note, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, advise me to not engage with policy or advocacy before I had tenure when I was a junior faculty. I chose not to take that advice, you know, um, because I just, uh, you know, this to me, this work is is too important to, to wait. And, and the other thing I want to say, it's not like you can just all of a sudden decide, okay, so I've done my science for a while. Now I want to try to, to, to have an impact or translate it. Like that is a whole skill set that takes a lot of practice and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of effort. And I think a lot of scientists underestimate, you know, the fact that that is an entire skill set, right, that requires cultivation. And so I think that's that that's the other thing that is worth emphasizing is that, you know, if, if you're if you're committed to solutions oriented approaches that, you know, are, I think, best well suited to consortiums or coalitions like that is a whole orientation and a skill set that that um that that takes work um i want to 
in, in a broader conceptual sense, I, when we started Che, there was a lot of talk in the first years about the precautionary principle. I don't hear about it as much as I used to, but it's still out there, of course. And but it guided a lot of the the broader thinking about how do we get to prevention in a sense. And with chemicals, it was about chemicals policy, which is an ongoing uh you know, discussion and debate and actually battle. And I'm thinking back to one of our early panels where we had all scientists from Europe talking about their reach approach in Europe, basically trying to flip the uh, default to, you know, let's let's evaluate substances before they're in our bodies and in our environment, et cetera. That's been a tough uh, fight all along in whatever level you want to put it, from the broader sense of the chemical industry to individual uh, substances, the piecemeal uh, approach that we have to take with every separate, you know, category or specific substance being looked at, regulated, fought over, it's just very difficult when we know how many we have out there, you know, whatever number you wish to choose, but tens of thousands, you know, however you want to choose it. So I wonder if you might reflect on how do you think that broader approach that entire mind shift and policy shift might be uh you know move forward in the future linda well I, I okay so steve i think one of the problems we faced here is that the precautionary principle has been misstated all too often in the in the u.s as opposed to europe the precautionary principle does not say you act in the absence of evidence it acts it says you act in the presence of incomplete evidence, but concerning evidence. And I think that is a, a really important distinction. One of the things I think we're going to have to begin to move to, there have been over 350,000 unique chemicals synthesized in the last 50 years. Almost none of them have been tested to any extent. We're never going to be able to test all of them. And we're going to have to begin to move to the whole issue of treating chemicals as classes. So Ami mentioned the phthalates, which is a broad class. Everyone we test, we start seeing it has some problems. Maybe not all exactly the same, but similar. You know, you can talk about the bisphenols and stuff like that. And we were so thrilled when bisphenol A came out of baby bottles and sippy cups. But now we have all kinds of very closely related chemicals, which do the exact same thing, not only for commerce, but in our bodies. And then you have the chemicals like PFAS, to which we are all exposed. They're universal. They're omnipresent <laughs> and ubiquitous. And, you know, there are over 12,000 of them. And we still haven't regulated at the federal level any of them. We're just getting to the point, really, of beginning to regulate one or two. So that's going to have to be a different approach. And when TSCA was reformulated, as the Frank Lautenberg Safety Act in 2016, the idea was it would require some more testing before new chemicals enter the marketplace. And the answer is that hasn't happened. And I don't really think it's going to happen. But that's going to demand a societal change to begin to look at and ask questions about what do we really need, what is really essential, and then go forward from there. So, you know, we have to begin to assume a more how much better to prevent harm than have to clean up from it. I don't know how you felt, but with the president's State of the Union and he gave this great comments about the, the cancer moonshot, 
but there was nothing about prevention. It was all about treatment and cures. And I think we know that there are things in our environment, and it's not only chem- not only synthetic chemicals, it's things like, you know, stress, for example, and certain nutrition and so on, which predispose to cancer. And if we could prevent some of that, we would prevent cancer rather than treating and curing it. So I, I do think that the approach needs to shift. And in some ways, you can look at FDA and their model for at least drugs is you have to prove safety before you put something out on the market. And I think we would be much further ahead if we required that kind of thing for um, synthetic chemicals. Um, I mean, I, I think the only thing I would add is it will require a societal shift, right? Which you know, requires political will. And I think the first step to potentially trying to activate that political will is education. So, I mean, the three of us have been talking about this issue for decades, but I'm always surprised when I lecture to master's students or undergrads. And I and I ask them, right, like just by a show of hands, like how many of them are aware of these chemicals and this issue? I mean, it's, you know, it's like usually like less than 10 percent. And these are, you know, these are undergrads. I mean, these are master's students, right? Uh, you know, I mean, they're they're educated, they're smart, but um, so the 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 issue, the the you know, the the awareness is is not penetrating as far as as we need it to. And I and I even look at like when New York Times, let's say, reports on the you know the the decline in the in the birth rate right in the US you know i mean they don't they still aren't mentioning that you know pervasive chemicals may be driving primary and secondary fertility right like that is right a plausible factor most likely is a factor that's contributing to, to reproductive changes but you know it's like how even though we have all this evidence why isn't the New York Times, you know, mentioning the environment as a factor, right? So what, like, what is, um, you know, I think it is worth having some internal reflection about, well, well, why hasn't that caught on as much? Is it because the science is so complicated and there's so many different chemicals and when, you know, everyone thinks you got rid of bisphenol A, but now you're talking about bisphenol S, their eyes glaze over. Um, is it because the chemical industry is really effective at mis and disinformation? You know, so what um I, I think we need to have some some of those, and I know people have, but um I, I would just say the the awareness isn't wh- where it needs to be. I'd just like to respond to that for one because I totally agree. And part of the problem, I think, is that environmental effects, there's not a smoking gun. In other words, I can't look at you, Steve, and say, Steve, if you'd had a little blood le- less blood lead when you were a kid, you'd have three more IQ points. But I can see the impact on a population. Same thing. Kid goes to the hospital on a bad air day with an asthma attack. You can never prove that that asthma attack was caused in that specific kid by the bad air. But statistically, it's likely. And this whole concept of shift in the distribution is something Somehow we haven't found a good way to describe that. You know, the difference with an infectious agent is you can go in and you can prove, oh, this person has this bug and this caused their problem. You can't do it with environmental things. So it's it's a much harder sell 
Um, and I think part of the problem is also bringing the medical community on board. Yeah, that's something we've been trying, of course, a long time. All of our Che uh, editions of the journal that we've done here, there's been seven of them now since we started trying to put this out. And we, you know, our initial chair was Dr. Phil Lee, who was the chancellor mm -hmm. of UCSF Medical uh, School. But and, and I've noticed, you know, MedPage is one of the most prominent and widely read medical news sources, and they've been pretty good, really, in the last couple of years. They often, you know, once a week, there's some headline story about environmental health, but it's a slow slog, as, as we've learned. And it's, you know, again, it goes to that issue of, of, you know, the primary role of people being either just bench scientists only wanting to do that or clinicians only wanting to take care of patients and not being more actively involved. And if you look at environmental health, I mean, environmentalism as a broad field, the history, you know, in the early years, going back to, say, the 1960s, was all about other species, basically, right. uh, and trees and things like that. And so one of our visions was to bring the human aspect of it more to the forefront. And, you know, it's slow, but I think it's I think it's happening, but yes, it's going to take a lot more work. I have a, just one more question before we go to question and answer here. Um, and this one you don't have to answer, but it's very interesting. I was reflecting, looking at, read, you know, scanning the scientific reports every morning when you start off and, and looking at some of these. I looked at four papers today in environmental health. Some were sent out on our J-list. Every author was a woman on all of these papers. And then I was thinking about Che itself. And in so many of our presentations, our scientists, our staff, um, women. And it, to my, you know, I may have the wrong, uh, you know, not the right sample, but my impression is, is that more than, maybe more than other particular scientific fields, environmental health seems to be particularly have a lot of women coming up in leadership roles, et cetera. I'm wondering if you think that's true or if you have any reflections on why that might be. I, I'm not sure it's true. I think it may be true in some parts of environmental health. Like I think epidemiology has now, there are many, many women. But if I look in, for example, um, environmental engineering, there are relatively few women. You know, I think we still have, I think women, there's been progress for women. As you know, I, I feel that things are better now than they, for women than they were, but there's still a long way to go. I want to just add two things. Um, I do spend a lot of time on Twitter and I get a lot of, I learn about a lot of new science that way. And I mean, I've seen a couple of actually, you know, studies that have shown that women still don't get cited as much. Right. So their citation scores are not as high, right? That, um, that COVID really, you know, put a you know, the, the child care, you know, issues during COVID, right, disproportionately fell on women. And it really took a hit on the number of grants they were submitting, the number of papers they were submitting, like gender disparities grew quite a bit during COVID. Um, so um, also, Linda, I, I don't think... Um, I mean, we've made progress. We've definitely made progress, but uh, we, we have a long way to go. Yeah. And then if you think about intersectional issues where, you know, gender and class and race intersect, uh, 
we have much, much, much further to go because when you add in those layers, the disparities are uh, very clear and um, present. Right. I think it's sample bias on my part then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it may just be, it's very interesting in medicine, it's been marked change in the last few decades where the actually women are majority of medical trainees now all over the nation. And, uh, you know, the uh, ethnicity has really changed. So that has been a conscious decision. And it's also been just by fact of, you know, the people who are coming up and, you know, who are the, the bright minds, you know, who are dedicated and committed to, to this training and to this field. So, well, okay. So thank you. Uh, we have an overwhelming number of, uh, if you would like to look at the uh, the chat here, of people asking questions and making comments for both of you. This goes back to the activism. Uh, when industry tries to discredit activist scientists, as was the case with Dr. Tyrone Hayes, one of our Che uh, core participants who spoke out against the harm of atrazine, has this ever happened to either of you? <laughs> I'll speak because um, I I was I would get very nasty letters from different industry groups, and then I would get the same letter, word for word, except the signature and the letterhead from members of Congress. That kind of thing would happen mm-hmm. more than once, and again, as a federal employee. There were often my emails and notes and stuff would be foiled by industry where they were just looking for something. Part of it was they were looking to maybe find something. Part of it is simple harassment. So I I think it's real. It definitely does happen. Yeah, I mean, sure, when Roland told us that he was actually called a communist, so maybe they've refined their messaging a bit on that, you know, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like we just had, was it um, a a little over a year ago? So, um, yeah, I think it was fall of 2021. um, My research group had kind of a big paper where we measured phthalates in fast food. Um, We actually measured them in the fast food samples, and it got a lot of press, a lot of press. And I, it really pushed, you know, buttons of, you know, both kind of the chemical industry as well as plastics, right? Because I, I think we were we're getting somewhere, right? And the chemical industry um, folks, I mean, they started trolling us and quite aggressively. So they, you know, tried sending multiple um, emails, wanting to meet with us, wrote these, you know, letter trying to discredit us, you know, went to the journal, um, wanting to, you know, sort of pub in theory, like in the spirit of publishing a rebuttal or comment, but, you know, not really attacking the science, right? Um, And, uh, and it. I mean, so, you know, I think the other thing to note is, you know, you you don't have to do this alone. So in my case, I engaged our Office of Communication as well as the Science Communication Network. So Amy and Emily, um, and they, they, I always work very closely with my Office of Communication, my University Office of Communication, and often with Science Communication Network um, on press releases and media strategies. So once again, you don't have to do any of this alone. 
know what your resources are. And they were also useful um, to engage with in, in, in this situation. And it was particularly delicate because, um, you know, I was a senior author, but the first author was a junior scientist um, who's a woman of color. And so, you know, there are racial overtones, you know, so talk about Tyrone Hayes, right? He was targeted the way he was because his research was impactful, but he's also a black man, right? And so there, there was racism involved there. And so, you know, I, I just tried to make sure to protect you know, really try to stand and pr protect my my junior colleague because, right, there there's just more to lose, right? Um, and I, I have more of an established reputation. And I mean, eventually they kind of just whatever died down. But uh, it, it got you know, so stuff like that is uh, you know, when you're effective, you you can anger people and they they feel threatened and. Um, you know, sometimes when people feel threatened, they, uh, you know, they, they, they come after you. Right. So, uh, and I, I think, you know, as a, as a field, maybe we need to figure out how to, um, su support people better who are kind of putting themselves out there in that way. They, they do troll you sometimes. I mean, I would be at a meeting, I would speak and there'd be a row of people in suits sitting in the front row who would kind of look at you and sometimes ask very inappropriate questions and then walk out. And, you know, you can't help but be upset when you get attacked. Yeah. But what I kept telling myself is, well, they wouldn't attack me if I wasn't making a difference. And that was helpful. Yeah, we had this experience in San Francisco long ago when we were banning smoking in, in restaurants for the first major city to do that and the tobacco industry. The same, just what you said, rows of guys in suits, you know, right. and uh, it was it was very disturbing in some ways, you know, but we still won. So, um, Ami, just on what you were just talking about, the question is, you suggested that having an impact is a learned skill and not just something that can be switched on once a scientist has reached some stage in their career. Any quick suggestions on how to cultivate those skills in yourself? <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, you know, find opportunities to to work, um, you know, in collaboratives with groups, um, you know, where you might just have a small role, but, you know, where your, in this case, scientific knowledge can, can be of value. Um, um, I, I really think some of the most impactful work happens when you would collaborate with people kind of outside of your field, right? When you collaborate with people who know different things than you do, who think differently than you do. And I'm just going back to PBD flame retardants, which is a shared, you know, love, I guess, of me and Linda. Linda and I, we both were very involved in kind of flame retardant science and kind of the translation of that to more health protective policies. But um, so when I was a postdoc and at UCSF, there was a consortium of uh, firefighters, health professionals, advocates that were coming together to really try to change TB 117, right? The fire safety standards, right? Um, right? The open flame standard that was, um, you know, basically indirectly leading to higher use of PVD flame retardants and higher exposures and levels in people in California. And, um, and I was doing like, you know, both the kind of exposure science research, but I was also kind of really trying to tackle the equity issues um, in the exposures and the blood and both with my own work, but then there was like a body of a small body of evidence forming. So I, I just 
try to like synthesize that for them, for the consortium, you know, in different ways with graphs, like really pull out, you know, the nitty gritty numbers from the tables, things that they wouldn't have the time to do, or sometimes even the insight. And, you know, I made them a slide deck. Um, if they needed to, I would, you know, talk at webinars and, um, you know, so that was like a, a small role, but it, you know, I think it was very useful. Um, and, um, and, you know, so if you try kind of different things, you can kind of figure out how to be useful. So I would say that's just the a first kind of lesson is like figure out how to be useful. <laughs> and then, you know, um, from there you, you sort of start learning like what, 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 where can you have traction? What works? What, what maybe doesn't work? You know, for me as an academic, I've had to figure out how to raise resources for this work so I can fund this work. That's a whole nother skill set, <laughs> but an important one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, cause, uh, after a while, you you have to figure out how to have resources because it is time intensive. Yeah. Linda, do you have any comment on that? Well, I think Ami's point about collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. None of us can do this by ourselves. And it's really important to work with others. And again, people with different skill sets. One of the things that I learned how important it is to value traditional knowledge as well as scientific knowledge because people in communities, people from different backgrounds have learned things that can be very, very helpful and, and actually provide underpinning for some of the science as you go forward. So I think those are a couple of important points. Here's an interesting one uh, question. Um, and I think it goes across a lot of the debates we have right now. Is some of the resistance to better environmental health policy, chemical policy, in that people fear their, quote, standard of living will need to be changed or declined in some way? Um, it's just interesting, you know, and the standard of living could be, you know, in terms of products available or whatever it is. I mean, do you think that people have an emotional uh, and economic, actually, uh, resistance to some of the things that we as environmental health advocates think need to be done? Of Either course. Way. I would say yes, right? I mean, the reality is we're all going to have to make sacrifices, you know, if we're serious about addressing climate change, right? And I, you know, I just point to the whole gas stove controversy, right? Like it's turned into... The science has been there, right? The science has been there for 30 years. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think some of the climate dimensions of the science are newer and more developed, um, but um, right, the, it's turned into this like culture war thing, right? Because one, people have an emotional attachment to their gas stove. And I think like the fossil fuel industry knows that the gas stove is, you know, the main thing kind of keeping natural gas in the home. Right. And so, you know, and, and, and kind of, I think they've turned it into a culture war for this, for exactly why you're saying, because um, they're, they're trying to kind of say, look, you know, the people like um, they want to take your gas stove away. Right for for the environment and so that, that that's kind of why it sort of turned into you know such a charged issue but i that's, mean i think I, yeah yeah i think well, i was gonna say i mean that's where we i think a communication has not been as 
helpful. The focus should be on gas stoves can harm your health, especially if you are in a socially and economically deprived group where you're living in a very small, relatively small area. But so is gas heat problematic also. So, you know, I think we all bought the line that natural gas was clean fuel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we're learning now that's not the case at all. So I think some of it, some of it is things that we learn later on. Some of it are things that it's a matter of how you present what the problems are. And yeah. also, what are what are the solutions? Because I don't think every right. you know everyone's not saying get rid of your gas stove tomorrow, right? I mean, I think the first line thing is ventilate, right? When you talk about health, mm-hmm. but, but open right. your windows, open your windows, ventilate, right? But um, but I think that, you know New York State is going to ban the use of any gas in buildings. What is it by twenty thirty, or maybe even sooner than that? So we're moving away from things. You know, I, I do think setting targets and letting people acclimate. We need to prepare people. And, you know, what people don't appreciate is all the, certainly, environmental regulations that have been issued over the years end up costing less than what was helping, say, as far as health costs. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's, you know, that's been very clearly shown with air pollution. Right. And I think it's and we now have data showing it with endocrine disrupting chemicals and we have data showing it with the PFAS and we have it with other things. When you actually get a impact assessment. And I guess I think that's something that we need to be doing a lot more of, of is understanding both the, the, the economic and the health, for example, impact of decisions that are made. It's the old ounce of prevention being worth a lot more in the long run. Than the pound of cure, correct. So we're up against our hour here. It's gone by very fast. And uh, you guys, you both have been super on this. And thank you for joining us here. And uh, to everybody else who has joined in too and been communicating here, thank you as well. And uh, on behalf of both Che and the New School, I have my New School mug here. It's fuzzy, but this is one of, you know my one of my prized possessions. Uh, we will have a recording of this posted at some point. But uh, thank you again. I'm going to turn it back to Kira to sign us out, and Linda and Ami again. Thank you very much. It's been great to see you here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, Steve and Ami and Kristen and Linda. Uh, As Steve said, if you want to rewatch or re-listen, or if you want to share the conversation recordings, we'll have them produced in about a week. And you can find them on the New School website or the Che website. So it's an honor to be part of Che's 20th anniversary Che Cafe series. And thank you all so much for joining us at the New School of Commonweal and the Collaborative for Health and Environment. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Linda Birnbaum, Ami Zota, and host Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. 
Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water could kill my body, water could kill my soul.